time to thrive. Welcome to the Thrivology Podcast with Dr. Lee Bauckham. Join us as we explore ways that you can thrive in your life, regardless of what life throws at you. It's your life. Time to live it. Do you ever find yourself just telling people how stressed out you are of all the things you have going on and how worried you are about getting it all done? You, you feel that feeling inside of you, that churning inside of you, that feeling, that stressful feeling does have an impact on your physical life. And it has an impact on our overall health. Today, we're going to talk about that. Elizabeth Hughes is my guest, and she is a stress expert, but she's also a medical doctor that began to clue in by watching her patients and the fact that they were struggling with health issues related to the fact that they were in a constantly stressed state. So after doing lots of research and study and lots of other certifications, she's come up with an approach to help people figure out how to take a stress antidote and get away from our kind of a constant stress response that we have in our world. So listen in now as Elizabeth Hughes and I talk about the stress antidote. We live in a world that talks a lot about stress, but not so much how you do something about stress. You hear people talking about how stressed they are, almost as if they're kind of wearing it as a, a badge of some sort. And uh, maybe that's not the best approach. Maybe what we really need to do is figure out how to lower our stress levels. And so today, uh, we're going to be talking about that. Elizabeth, thank you so much for being here. I would love to hear your story of how you got to this point. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to here. Yeah, well, I'd love to. It's a little long story, but you know, pipe in along the way if I if you get lost. <laughs> so I am a conventionally trained doctor, and as a doctor, we're really not taught to anything about stress as an illness. We're talking about how the body functions, but not sort of what happens behind it. So I was sitting oh, probably about ten years ago at during lunch reading back issues of medical journals. And in one of the back issues of medical journal, there was a report about the first time a condition called Cushing's disease was discovered. It was about 100 years ago. I, you're, you, you're familiar with that. It's basically an uh, excess of the adrenal hormones, the stress hormones. And in this case, it was caused by a brain tumor, but that doesn't really matter. And so a hundred years ago, this was a big deal to figure it out. And it was in the back of the journal of the American Medical Association as a little, uh, like, isn't this cool medical history thing? But along with that was a description of what that first patient with Cushing's disease had. And she was a woman who couldn't get pregnant, didn't have a period, had acne, was overweight, had diabetes, was growing extra hair in places she didn't want, and on and on. And it suddenly hit me, that's everyone I saw this morning. Mm. You know, that's most of, many, many of the patients I was seeing had one or more of a cluster of these symptoms that is the over the overactivation and over secretion of adrenal hormones the stress hormones all right so in that same stack of journals that i had that i was reading through during lunch there was another journal which talked about the fact that there's a potential shortfall in the number of physicians needed to take care of the baby boomers and, and people as they get older. And having just read that article on stress and Cushing's disease, I thought, well, 
is there really that there's not enough doctors or is there too much illness somehow? Mm. Is there too much of this stress hormone hormone being released that then is affecting our health in ways that we don't generally accept? So that was just, those ideas were just ping-ponging around in my head for a long time. I'm going to be honest. It would be nice if I had some sudden epiphany and I went, ta-da! I'm going to do this, but it didn't. Hmm. What happened in my own life over the subsequent years was that I started, I mean, I've had anxiety or I had, past tense, anxiety for years. And I thought that was normal. Like, how can you get through medical school and residency without developing an anxiety disorder? That's what it does. It's, but, but my own stress level was skyrocketing, even as my professional life was calming down, even as my personal life was getting more wonderful. So by like, by like 10 years after finishing my residency, I had achieved every professional goal I wanted to achieve and every personal goal I'd wanted to achieve. And I was absolutely miserable. Hmm. I was anxious all the time. I started to develop panic attacks. I couldn't think clearly. I was exhausted in a way that, that sleep didn't refresh. I had chronic pain. I had weird neurologic symptoms. And I was diagnosing myself with sort of everything. And I realized that the stress was actually killing me. And so that idea of ping-ponging back around in my head of maybe there's too much illness, what is stress really doing to ourselves, and what is it that drives stress started to to formulate when I met a patient who basically through a shift in her perception of her body's ability to heal itself, that sort of spontaneously caused a a resolution of a chronic illness that had previously been told it wasn't, she was never going to heal. So to, you know, so I had this idea of stress causes illness that we now take to be normal. My life is falling apart. There's, uh, and the idea that what you think directly and and how you feel directly affects health sort of all gelled into one direction that I really needed to uh, investigate for myself, for my patients. But I had to go way outside of what conventional medicine teaches because this idea that stress has a direct and real effect on how our body functions, which it does, uh, is, is really, it should be mainstream, but it's not. It's not taught in medical schools. I talk to medical, uh, you know, medical students and residents, and they say, we don't learn this. We don't know this in the way that we really should. What do you think is, I'm just curious, and this is kind of a side thing, but what do you think is if, if, you talked about you know, reading that article, seeing all these symptoms and going, that's everybody I saw today. And yet it's not part of uh, typical understanding in medicine. What, what do you think the block is there? Why does that not happen? Um, well, because as a doctors are trained that what we think to basically our, our body and our head are disconnected. Like that's really in medical school, I was never ever taught anything about how a person 
thinks and what it does to your health. Even though the evidence is staring us in the face with every placebo controlled trial, there, the evidence that what you think about what's going on in your health changes your health is staring at us. But does that make sense? It does. Um, and you're t- yeah. t- talking about your own anxiety, which is, I mean, and I, I don't want to reduce it to that, but it's in your head, right? I mean, there, there's something it's entirely, in it. It's entirely, and yet it's also in your body. I mean, you're feeling that the anxiety, you, you don't experience just anxious thoughts. You feel the anxiety in your body. Right. Which kind of, let's just go for a minute. How does that happen? I mean, how do these emotions, how, do they, how does it affect our body? And why is that important for us to kind of recognize? Oh, great question. So, you know, when we not only have the, the parts of our body that think, the nerves that are in our head, but our, um, there is our subconscious or our autonomic nervous system is constantly on the lookout for how it should adjust to our environment. And it takes those cues from what we think and what we feel. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So if we feel like we are in some sort of threat, there are messages that are sent via neurotransmitters and hormones that take, I don't know, three heartbeats to get everywhere in your heart body. So when you, know, when you think you see a threat, you can think about this as if you have a near miss accident in a car, let's say, you have an immediate release of those stress hormones and you may find, even if you're okay, that your heart is beating really fast and your gut may feel clenched and you may feel shaky or sweaty even before it really registered that you were in true danger, mm. that your body stinks faster because those instincts help you survive. Mm. Does that answer your question? It, it does. I mean, I've, I've read um, and kind of the, my experience is held to this that um, our bodies haven't evolved, you know, if structurally much beyond you know our ancient ancestors, and yet the world has evolved very, very quickly. And so, you know, my understanding is that our ancient ancestors on the savannah or wherever would have had a uh, kind of an acute stress moment. Something's after them. Something really is a threat, and then it's over and gone and their body could naturally, you know, kind of fall away. So to go with your example of in the car, so Mm -hmm. I'm driving along in the car, which is if you're in traffic, particularly stressful anyway, it's kind of a chronic stress. And then suddenly this thing comes in, you know, there's a scary moment when somebody pulls in front of you or whatever, and you, you feel all that you mentioned, but you don't actually end up flushing it at that point. It ends up being a chronically conditioned, uh, a continuing condition because I still have to keep driving. Right. 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 So our world around us is uh, keeping us in something of a, um, a threat mode almost all the time. Right. Well, and that's exactly what I started to discover as I was studying more on my own, working more deeply, is that at the core of how we're, we think about the world, it gets to the point where we feel like Everything is a threat. Mm-hmm. Everything has this basic feeling of we're all walking around saying, I can't handle this. Something bad could happen to me uh, and I won't be able to handle it. And what I realized is, at least on the health front, I can't speak to the car accident or anything else, but at least on your health front, when you're talking about 
personal anxiety and things that you control is the answer is you can and you are handling it all the time. If you're here, if you have a pulse, if you're breathing, your body is doing an amazing job of caring for you. But there's a disconnect between how we think about what our health is and what's actually happening. And that that disconnect is, um, I think, correcting that disconnect is key to just turning off this baseline stress of I can't handle it, I can't handle it, I can't handle it. The the pot, you know, keeping the pot simmering all the time, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I always think of it more like a pressure, you know, a pressure cooker where the pressure is never completely relieved. It's always just at a low level, right. then suddenly it spikes up, and so it's always under pressure. And right. your suggestion is that there is another option. Yes. Yes. So before you talk about the other option, how to, let's go back to your story. You've been reading, I mean, you know, um, it's interesting that probably not too many people over lunch are reading medical journals. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> you're getting some clues there. And, and so how did that expand? I mean, so you isolate the fact that this is, they're talking about something which is basically an adrenal gland effect that you're seeing in lots of people you're experiencing in your own anxiety and then the pieces start fitting that that's not something you were prepared for in med school to deal with. Right. So you start looking. I start looking. And at first, I'm going to be honest, I'm just looking at whatever whatever seems to give a little piece of the puzzle to me. And I don't know what I'm really looking for, but I'm looking because I know I don't have the answers. So I got a, a spiritually based health coaching certification. I didn't know what I was doing. I was like, okay, I'm going to go. I'm just going to go and throw myself into it. I did some, some uh, I became a yoga instructor. I'd always practiced yoga. Didn't help me with my anxiety at all, by the way, until I figured out what to do about it. But but now it does. Um, but I became a yoga instructor and really dove deeply into that. I, as part of that, I studied Ayurvedic medicine uh, for a while, which is the ancient Indian medical traditions. Uh, I also uh, did some uh, training around an energy medicine technique on subconscious belief changing. Really being sort of guided in what's my next question. And then I read, I don't know, hundreds of books and texts and went to lectures and studied uh, both medical texts on psychoneuroimmunology and how the nervous system and the immune system uh, and the hormones all interact. I studied um, and lots and lots of uh, self-healing books, like those self-help, self-healing. I healed myself of cancer and here's how I did it. Until I kind of got this, this idea of there's a, a, a fundamental shift in a way a person needs to feel in order to get their body to heal in general. And that's directly related to turning off your automatic stress response. Hmm. Okay, so talk a little bit about what's the automatic stress response. Well, the automatic, or maybe I should put it this way. The, the stress response indicates that you have your sympathetic nervous system. And I hate that term because it doesn't have anything to do with sympathy, but that's what it's called. Mm-hmm. We've got our automatic nervous system falls either into the stress response, the sympathetic nervous system, 
or the rest and restore response, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. Mm -hmm. And what I realized is everybody's running around with their sympathetic nervous system activated most of the time, oftentimes, well, most of it not necessary, and less time when the parasympathetic nervous system is on. That's the time that our bodies actually repair themselves of anything. You know, that's, that's the time that, that we spend uh, regenerating cells, digesting food properly, restoring blood flow. All of that has to, happens only when our body is in this repair and restore mode, the parasympathetic nervous system is on. And what you think and how you feel determines that switch. Hmm. Okay. So um, I'm, I'm curious on how you took that into your medical world and then how people can apply that. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, all right. So in my medical world, so I, I will say right here, I wear kind of two hats. I am still a conventional doctor and in the rushed 15 maybe 15 minute appointment, (laughs) if you're lucky, and that's just how it is in medicine, you're never going to get this, Mm -hmm. which actually sadly reinforces your own stress level. It's, it's It's a vicious hamster wheel that you can't get out unless you jump off and decide, I'm going to find something different. So that's how I spend the other half of my time. I I work with people very specifically when they feel that stress is ruining their health. And I teach them what it feels like to have your body's self-repair systems turn on, which is really the antidote to stress. And we work on that feeling and we work on the subconscious beliefs around that. It's clear. I mean, I'm interested in this medical world thing. Um, You're going from room to room, you know, you've got maybe 15 minutes. And so basically I would think that would lead to a stressed out doctor (laughs) coming into the, yeah, coming into the room of a stressed out patient. Yes. Um, And the answer is let's figure out, you know, is there a prescription I can write? Is there, is there something we can do as an intervention rather than something that would take longer, like teaching these methods? Is that kind of where we've got a broken system around the stress? Completely. Yeah. You could not have summed it up better. And, and you may or may not be aware that doctors as a profession are incredibly burned out, very high rates of suicide, of alcoholism, of uh, substance abuse. Broken marriages, everything that you can broke, the calculate. The whole yeah. thing. I mean, it is the worst. And uh, it's actually pretty tragic that you take a group of you know, young people, a bunch of, let's say, 22, 23-year-olds entering medical school. And in a way, they are the best and brightest that the education system can produce. And in 10 years, you do what they did to me for 15 years. You're exhausted, lost, like (laughs) exhausted and sort of a shell of who you were. There's something wrong with the Mm -hmm. system that does that to people. <laughs> yeah. And I've, I've watched, you know, even as we go further along, that's not better. That's only gotten worse over time. Totally. Yeah. And um, I, I remember I had a, a friend of mine who is a doctor and his family, his, his practice was going to the medical records, you know, there, I mean, the electronic records. And I said, oh, right, that'll be so great. Then y'all will be more efficient. And he said, we'll <laughs> never be as efficient as we are right now. We'll lose, we'll be down to 80% when we are at our best. And I said, so bringing in new technology actually makes it worse. And he said, that's been the, the, the whole span of my career. 
Yes. And that is, that is totally true. I, I practice in the world of paper charts and I practice with a bunch of electronic medical records and I will tell you nothing beats paper. Yeah. Nothing. You can, well, if nothing else, you can actually sit face to face and talk to a patient, make a few notes out of the corner of your eye versus having to have all of your focus on a box uh-huh. that's not the patient. We have dehumanized even that process of that moment of connection. So right. let's talk some about uh, if someone, so um, I think we can drop off the, the time you spend going room to room for 15 minute segments and go with what happens when you're trying to teach someone, coach someone into less stress in their life. What, first, what would, why would somebody arrive at your doorstep for that? And second, how do you start that process with them? Yeah. So people arrive usually because they've seen somewhere in the range of 10, 20, maybe I had one person see 80 doctors before she got to me, 80 doctors and other practitioners. And they reach a point where they say, I know stress is a part of this. It may not be the whole part, but if I, nobody's being able to help me with this truly. And so uh, a lot of times people find me Either, either at frustration at the end of the line or when they have that moment, they wake up and they realize, oh, wait, every time I'm more stressed, I feel more sick. Mm-hmm. So that's how people find me. Um, how I start, I mean, the very first exercise I do with people is a brief exercise in what it feels like to ha- be in a situation where you can trust. And that's that we sort of build from there. And I use that that idea or that feeling state because it is as close as you can get to what happens when your body is in that perfect repair mode. Hmm. And we do, we do an exercise where we just recall a time when you were completely, you had complete trust in someone else. You could completely relax. And, uh, and we really work on that and, and get that feeling to be your new baseline, to be, that takes a while because everything in the environment, every bit of well-meaning advice you're ever going to get is going to draw you further away from that state. But that's the, that is the state that you need to have and feel grounded in, however one experiences it. What is that exercise? I mean, how, how, can you kind of walk us through what oh, that sure. feels oh, like? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Yeah. So, so I'm, um, I ask people to choose a time when they had complete trust in another person. So often it's a time from childhood. Uh, and this is different from someone you love because love can take responsibility. This is a situation where you could hand over responsibility. For me, I give the example of my uncle. So I was seven years old and very afraid of thunderstorms. And I was also embarrassed to be so old and be afraid of thunderstorms. And I was at a big family vacation on the beach in North Carolina. And a huge thunderstorm started coming in from the coast. You can just imagine big purple clouds and dark sky and it started raining. And I was terrified because we were in a little flimsy beach shack, you know, up on on, uh, stilts so that it didn't flood. And I was terrified. And my uncle sat me down and said, here, sit. We're going to watch this and you're going to see it. And for 
25, 30 minutes. We watched as the storm came. We watched the lightning. He taught me how to count between the lightning and the thunder. We just watched the storm pass over us. It rained like cats and dogs for 10 horrible minutes, and then it went. And I was never afraid of thunderstorms again. And I, now I love them. Mm. And so, but I go back and I really put myself in that state of how it felt to have that trust in another person. And when you get there, that's your body's repair systems turning on. Mm. And so you don't necessarily have to undo all the stressors in your world. You don't have to control. You just have to make sure you can get your body to make that trust feeling feel more normal and so use that as your, your compass. Yeah. You're, as you're talking about that, um, what you're encouraging people to do is not just recall it, but to experience it again. Exactly. Exactly. And it can be, it can be even the briefest moment. I was working with someone uh, just last week where it was a teacher you know, there was just one teacher at one moment where she, you know, the teacher sort of got rid of a very dangerous seeming situation in a school. And it just has to be that moment when you knew it's going to be okay. Hmm. And so and now once they've ex- remember that experience, that that safe feeling, yes, their task is to find some ways back to that feeling or yeah. just to embody well, it. it. So, so yes, but that's, we work on that very specifically. And there, there's, there's lots of ways that we work to make sure that that, uh, that feeling becomes easier and easier for a person. There are lots of exercises we do. We're calling it, we undo all of this. <laughs> we talk about all of the advice we're getting from uh, grandmothers and neighbors and doctors. And, and we really talk about how that might not have been the best advice, even if it was well-meaning. <laughs> so what is some of that bad advice? Well, one of the things I talk about with, uh, that doctors do all the time is use the word chronic. Hmm. I got, chronic gives you absolutely no hope that there's ever going to be a solution. It's one of the worst words. And I, in my medical practice, when it would be really easy for me to say chronic, I now don't. I find other ways to discuss illnesses that may have been going on for a long time without cutting off the idea that it's going to be forever. Mm-hmm. So that's that's and that's just a word. You know, that's not an advice. It's just a common word that we believe has way more meaning and power than it should. Are there other um, things that people tell people that you think maybe cause more problems than? help when it's around stress when somebody or maybe they haven't even identified as stress at that point but when they're not right. doing well well another bit of of at least from the medical standpoint is the idea that certain medical conditions always run in families that if you've have a family member who's had cancer or heart disease or anything like that that it's automatically going to apply mm. to you yeah. and that's t- Totally not true. Most illnesses are not genetic. And overcoming that thought is super important. <laughs> well, and, and I've, I've also read a lot that even what is genetic doesn't take into account the epigenetics, the things that might have triggered it. So you may have 
you know, a possibility of something in your genes in the gene right. pool that you never activate because you, you know, live differently or lower your stress or do something that avoids it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You may carry a one bad gene, but you carry thousands of really mm. good genes and they, when they're activated, they protect you from that little one. And, mm. and the other, I mean, not to get a little gruesome, but we're all forming cancer in us all the time, but our immune systems turn it, you know, destroy those cells. When our immune systems are functioning in that restorative mode. My understanding is, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, is that we actually have cancer cells in our body all the time. They're, yep. they're just, they're the mutations that aren't going to work. And then our immune system attacks them and gets rid of them and we're okay. Yes, absolutely. That you are absolutely right. And there are uh, processes, the process called apoptosis of just programmed cell death when a cell is either def defective or has reached the end of its lifespan. Mm -hmm. Cancer happens when those mechanisms and the immune system that triggers them go haywire. So this, just for a minute, that haywire, haywire thing that happens, how does stress do that? What, what is the interplay between our being stressed and our body falling into some ill health? So cortisol, the, the main, the big stress hormone, and there are lots of others, but the big stress hormone directly affects how uh, immune cells function. It, I mean, that you look at cell cultures and feed them stress hormones, your, you know, all of your immune cells do not function the same way. And you, uh, when you, there's some great, uh, great studies where people take human cancers and, and graft them onto mice and then inject extra cortisol and then mark, look at their cell markers for programmed cell death and see that they don't die, that, that uh, the tumors proliferate. The, the stress hormones affect every single solitary cell in your body. You, every cell has receptors for them. And, and your body is primed to respond. It's primed to respond all the time. So this response, I mean, this cortisol is running through, and it's, my understanding is that one thing it does is it knocks down our immune system also. That yes. We right. have a, a slower res, uh, immune response or somehow that and immune response is, is hampered. Exactly. Exactly. So we don't, we don't fight off infections as easily. Colds last longer, easier to get cold sores and things like that. And people will tell, I mean, this is the crazy thing. People do know this. I was really stressed out. I had a big test and I got a cold sore. Well, that's an infection. <laughs> you know, we know this at some level, but we don't go to the big picture and say, Oh, yeah. <laughs> this is this might be not more than just a little blistery lip. My wife would tell me that uh, every time we hit a break after a semester of my grad school, I got sick. You know, it was just like I finished, got sick. And yep. uh, I thought, okay, well, I just finally relaxed enough for it to happen. And, and looking back, I realized that what was really going on was my immune system was getting crushed by the stress. And once I had a chance just to pause a minute, it all came crushing in on me. Yeah. And people do the same thing when they go on vacation and get sick. Yeah. So it's just kind of interesting to, to take this one step further. So you've got this place where people can imagine a point when their parasympathetic system was doing what it needed to do. Yeah. 
what are some ways, let's, let's say um, you're in the car or wherever and you suddenly go, okay, I've, you know, I'm feeling it. I'm feeling the anxiety. I'm feeling my sympathetic system on high alert. If we have been able to identify what it feels like when we're not doing that, how can we begin to move towards that? Yeah. Well, I'm going to answer the question by uh, sort of saying you need to practice it when you're not having that panic attack. Sort of like learning to ride a bike. You're not going to go out on a you know 45 degree cliff with, with a lot of rocks right away. So you practice that process when nothing bad is happening. So it becomes more and more automatic and normal. But for a person who right now might be listening in their car and is having a stress <laughs> response, there is nothing like breathing mm. and I'm, you know, to, to decrease that. The, the physical act of your diaphragm, the great big muscle that separates the abdomen from the, the lungs, that rubs up and as it moves up and down as you inhale and exhale, that actually rubs on a great big nerve called the vagus nerve that is the nerve of the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and restore. And you basically sort of tickle it and wake it up, like tickling at a baby to like wake it up. It, this is what it does. So deep breaths not only um, you know, help to oxygenate, which we need, helps to uh, restore your blood flow, but it literally wakes up the parasympathetic nerve. And then, which counteracts the the stress response. You know, at, for a long time, I was teaching uh, people to do box breathing. As yeah, a way the, of, the square in, pause, out, pause. Yeah, yeah. yeah. and so yeah. I was doing that a long time, and I talked to somebody um, who was an expert in the polyvagal theory, and her she said, "No, that's really good if you're try if you're like in the you know the special forces, which is where they came up with it, because you need to be alert, but you don't need to be calm. You need to be alert and focused." And right. she, she explained that uh, for the um, optimal breathing, it's to actually double the, the breath out as it takes it in. And, uh, and I said, so what count? And she basically said, get people just to notice their breathing. Mm-hmm. And they'll naturally breathe differently just by paying attention to that. And so um, I noticed it for myself. You know, when you said that, I went, yeah. oh, I need to breathe lower and deeper and <laughs> slow it down. Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, there are all sorts of of breathing techniques you can do. But do you mind if I uh, make a comment on what you just said about the special forces and being alert but calm? Mm -hmm. Uh, People, one of the things that I've noticed in talking with people about this is that they assume that if they are relaxed, they're not going to actually be able to respond. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's another big fallacy that somehow being amped up and on the edge of your seat, metaphorically or physically, is going to actually help you to respond to whatever happens. And it's actually not true. When when you are in a high anxiety state, uh, your frontal lobe actually is relatively starved of oxygen. Mm -hmm. And so you're not going to be able to think, process, reason, logic nearly as well as if you are relaxed. You can actually get lots of stuff done when you're relaxed. (laughs) 
Yeah. And, and so, and, and her to, I mean, I didn't add it in there, but the, her response was, you realize that the box breathing was designed for when they were pulling a trigger. And I went, Oh, you're right. <laughs> so we need to, you know, how to have that focus in that moment was of the inhale or exhale. And I went, yeah, we need to kind of change that thought process, but, but you're correct. We're not trying to, uh, it's not a choice between stressed out and comatose. Yes. There can yes. be a place where you are focused, um, and, and, um, just, you know, ready to take action, but not dominated by the, the fear response. Right. And, and I think, uh, oh, go ahead. No, well, it's just interesting because, um, I've often, uh, you know, people who, who ba- wear their badge of honor of stress, I've often re- reminded them or informed them that stress, it really is just another name for fear. I mean, that when we're talking about stress, what we're really talking about is a fear response. Oh, absolutely true. Totally true. And just, and just more fun doctors, to use stress. <laughs> right. Well, it's more socially acceptable. Exactly. I mean, if we all walked around out saying, well, I'm afraid right now, people yeah. would say, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, so we're sugarcoating it. Yeah. And, and speaking of wearing bags, badges of stress, I mean, if you want to see a group of people who are completely wearing their stresses as, you know, as honors, this, go sit with a bunch of medical residents. They're, they're so stressed out and comparing the amount that they have to do and how little you slept. Well, I didn't sleep for 48 hours. And, <laughs> and so, which is interesting. Um, as I had a conversation, I was listening into a conversation. I was on a plane. Um, it wasn't med student. I was around med students for years in a training program. And you're correct. They uh, would outdo each other as much yep. as they could about what they had to handle that day or what they're going to have to handle. But I remember this moment I had, they were, they were sitting right in front of me, two salespeople and they sat down and they were the typical salespeople cheery. At the beginning of the day, they were headed off to a city to you know go do their sales thing. And they were just on the top of the world when they came in and sat down and they started talking about their day and they began to outdo how bad their day was going to be. And I could literally watch their mood drop in front of me as nothing had happened, right? I mean, the, they were on a plane, they go from a good mood to this horrible, the day's going to be a wreck and nothing's ever going to turn out and their life is a failure and how could this ever happen? All because not of anything that had happened, but of how they were thinking about it and talking about it. Right. Yeah. It's amazing. <laughs> So it's possible that nothing can, we we don't have to be on the road and have something, you know, scare us that is good. We're going to get hit by a car. We could just as easily imagine that and have that same response. Oh, absolutely. Imagination is your, your, uh, your body does not know the difference between imagination and reality. Mm. It's, it's really relying on the, you know, brain structures that send this signal and then it doesn't care. You know, it doesn't care if the, there's really a car accident or if you're worried that there might be a car accident. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is uh, just to kind of take one step further. I've um, asked people who are dealing with a lot of stress how much news they're watching because our brain also doesn't know the difference between what's happening around us and what we're watching, you know, the footage of on TV. And, um, and so we are exposed on a regular basis in media and other ways to uh, fear provoking images and situations. Right. right. And one of the things I ask my clients to do is to go on a news fast or mm-hmm. relative news fast. Um, it, people say, but, 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 but the world will fall apart if I don't know. Yeah. You'll be no. out of touch. 
Yes, I've had yeah, that conversation. I tell it's people, no, I don't watch the news. And they're like, so you're not going to be well-informed and you're going to be out of touch. I'm like, do I change anything, first of all? And second, I hear plenty anyway. <laughs> exactly. I, I almost, I don't watch the news or listen to the news at all. But, but I, if something important happens, someone notices, mentions it. Yeah. Then I look it up. Yeah. yeah. And this is, it's kind of interesting to me how people do that. I mean, we're, we're just talking about this what you expose yourself to, but people get up first thing in the morning, turn on the news before they even go to work. They've already had their scare of the day, go through their Mm -hmm. day, have to deal with the stuff that's really coming at anybody. And then they end their day going to bed, turning on the news, watching the last bit and being scared into sleep. (laughs) So we've got a wonderful way of keeping ourselves on the fear hamster wheel if we let that happen. Right. So, so you, you mentioned that uh, news fast. What what kind of things do you suggest for people to do to begin to decrease uh, kind of that exposure? So, so that I, I call it being bored. Making sure that you're not. We 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 are such sponges for information, and we want to know. But having much of what you get when you want to know isn't very, very supportive. Plus you just need to have your brain calm down and notice. So that's one of the, one of the actions I ask people to take is find some way to be bored. Uh, on the flip side, also when they rest to actually rest. So those two kind of go into hand in hand. People will say, well, I'm just going to lie down and listen to something. Well, no, that's not really truly restful. Um, so those are a couple of the things that I do ask people to do. I work really specifically with people to ha- so they can find specific things that they do in their lives and change that rather than me giving a sort of blanket prescriptive, don't watch the news. Well, they might not watch the news, but they might be constantly on Facebook or something mm-hmm. like that, mm-hmm. looking yeah. at comparisons and things like that. Which more and more is Other- the news. Right, Exactly. <laughs> Uh, other things that I ask people to do is work on some creativity. Creativity is way undervalued. Uh, and so finding something that they feel good, even if it's just making a mess, I'm the least artistic person in the world, but my creative outlets are other things. And I just like, didn't, didn't never judge them as creative because it didn't look like beautiful art. Mm -hmm. So finding creativity, finding laughter, uh, I, I personally find it amazing that pediatric hospitals are so far ahead in using laughter and play as medicine. And the moment you turn 18, you don't need it anymore. Really? <laughs> really? That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So yes, laughter is incredibly important. And while you're laughing, you also activate your vagus nerve. So because of the deep breathing, more seriously. tickling of it when you yes, laugh. Yes, Exactly. <laughs> Um, so you, you just said that uh, when you work with people, there's not a one, one fits all, but there's some, you, you just named several things that people can try. Let's say that uh, somebody is going, oh, wow, you know, I do talk about being stressed out or I am feeling those symptoms. Um, how can they get in contact with you and uh, where would you like them to go? Well, they can just go to thestressantidote.com. That is me. You will find me. And I, there's stuff, information there. And I would love to help people any way we can because we need to de-stress. 
Yeah, so the stress, not de stress, but the stress antidote.com, just to make sure. Yes. And we'll have the link to that in the show notes um, since a lot of people are doing, you know, stressful driving or, or whatever else. <laughs> yes, do not while Google while in car. <laughs> no, no, no. So we'll have that uh, ready for you. The stress antidote.com, though. If you can't remember, just check out the show notes. Um, Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing. I, I certainly agree that, and, and what's interesting to me, there's so much that could be done. And I, I'm, I'm amazed that the medical world doesn't take that on or the insurance world of a way of, you know, bettering their payouts, for instance. Uh, but um, while they ignore it, you don't. And I appreciate you sharing ways that other people can uh, take some stress out of their lives. So thestressantidote.com. Elizabeth, thank you so much for sharing. Thank you so much, Lee. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. listening to the Thrivology podcast. Thank you for listening. If you want more information, visit us at thrivology.com or at thrivologymagazine.com. Remember that Thrivology is spelled T H R I V E O L O G Y. It's your life. Time to live it. Uh-huh.